You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jenna Mock from Google Play's business development team. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'm very excited to have you here. I want to start by going back in time and talking about the beginning of your career, which you started in research and financial analysis, first at Morgan Stanley and then later at Third Bridge. What attracted you to that work? You know, fresh out of the college, you know, then I had this fantasy over, oh, investment banking. So it was quite simple, actually. It was before uh, subprime mortgage, all the financial crisis happened. So I thought, you know, I need to go to somewhere where I can be in finance. But I knew that I wasn't the most numerically, you know, like smart person like on this earth. So I wanted to do something that could actually create story. And I found that like overlap space and it was financial research. Essentially what it is, is uh, picking out the stocks that are uh, attractive and you think that, that the price is going to go up in the near future and you recommend it to the institutional investors. So I was based out of Korea. Uh, my job at Morgan Stanley was uh, recommending Korean stocks to the foreign investors. And, you know, when they visit the country, you know, have, take them out to uh, the companies to kind of do it further research. So that was that. It was simple as that. Like whatever looked fancy, I wanted to go after. <laughs> yes. And did you find any uh, successful stocks? Were you a good stock picker? Yes, I, I I guess to a certain degree, but it doesn't help that, you know, right after I got into the industry, three months later, uh, Lehman Brothers happened. It's interesting because I was interviewing with Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley at the same time. And somehow I made it to Morgan Stanley, but not Lehman. Well, that worked out well for you. I guess so. And uh, three months later, you know, this whole you know turmoil happened. Entire uh, financial industry was shaken and a lot of people got laid off. So that wasn't the best time to be in the industry, certainly. But I did learn a lot about just general hard work ethic. And yeah, I actually got to think about a career so much because usually when you're unhappy, when you think about those (laughs) and in finance, because it's such a traditional industry, there are a lot of layers above you. And no matter how like you excel in the industry, it's usually until your boss retires that you cannot take her or his position. And it's really a subset of um, like a, this giant financial industry that has a very traditional, like long history. So I kind of got to think about maybe something, you know, disruptive, like something new, you know, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? And after three years at Morgan Stanley, I actually decided to move to China and make a drastic move. I thought the future was in China back then, still is to a certain degree, you know, it's a big market. And then I just kind of explored. Um, And where did you live in China? I lived in Shanghai. Very good. How's your Mandarin? Mandarin... I wanted to be fluent, fluent as in like native speaker. When you shoot for the star, you will land among the stars. So I, I think I got closer to that. I do have the uh, the highest level on HSK, which is 
the Chinese written exam. So you mentioned that you ultimately made this big career transition and you had discovered this passion for storytelling when you were starting to work in financial analysis. And that ultimately led you to work at CJNM, which is Korea's biggest media and entertainment company. Right. I always had passion for entertainment. Um, me being a personally being a dancer and have so much passion for dance, but you know, being Asian, like my parents always talked about, you know, you got to work in something big name company. Um, so I always kept, kind of kept dance on the side. When I was in Shanghai, though, since I was exploring, you know, everything that I could possibly uh, could explore, I actually want, wanted to teach a dance class in Shanghai because at that time, K-pop was really popular. So uh, I taught for about six months, not too long, but it was enough to discover that that wasn't probably my career passion. Then what can I do? I thought with my business skills, maybe going forward, I can help the dancers who couldn't monetize or who couldn't really you know, build like a legit social status, especially in Asia, uh, if you are in entertainment, not more so now with the K-pop rising and all, but uh, like even 10 years like ago, I think people were uh, kind of looking down on you. And so I wanted to help them and ultimately helping them, like I thought helping them to monetize their content would, you know, result in like making a better social position for them as well. And was that something you were able to do uh, during your time at CJ is have a creator network and empower these dancers who wanted to make money from their passion? Not initially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was kind of a vague dream of mine. Uh, but I initially joined as a strategy team. So helping the global strategy team how to expand Korean content to the rest of the world. I worked with things like KCON and um, like a film festival in New York and things like that. But I always had that passion. Now, after about a year or so, I got to be in touch with this group of like, it was like a venturing pioneering team within a corporate umbrella. So their mission was to come up with a new business model. And at that time, so I became one of the founding members as uh, like of MCN, like one of Asia's first MCN. Now it's called Diet TV. Uh, it's Korea's largest MCN. At that time, I just, you know, everything clicked. And I got to think about my experience as a dancer, uh, my struggles that I had to go through because, you know, there's no money in the industry. And plus, you know, even my investment banking skills of, you know, how to analyze a company and because and the financial models, because that's essentially like basis, one of the basis skill sets that you need for like a startup. So uh, me and the other three people basically just restarted out of like zero. The, at that time, company didn't really provide anything. CJ is like the Disney of Korea. So they own, you know, 17 cable TV channels, movie distribution and production, uh, music uh, labels. Uh, so it's a, like a giant company, but then... At that time, no resource was given to us. So it was just like, if you can't make it in a year, you make it. If you don't, you all split to different teams. Wow. So you had to really figure it out for yourself. So it was kind of like a startup, although I, I did have like monthly paycheck. Yeah, it was very, you know, from the ground zero, you build up. And what about the market or what inspired you to launch an MCN? How did you have uh, an idea about what to do in those early days? So obviously we worked a lot to benchmark uh, U.S. Uh, examples. At that time, I think Maker Studio was just on the its very like first booming uh, stage. And later in the year, it got acquired by Disney, of course. And I think at that time, because it was acquired by Disney, I think CJ executives started to listen to us. Like uh, before, 
were saying, you know, this YouTube is huge. It's going to be the next media and so forth. And no one really took us seriously. But once that happened, I think because of the name value of Disney, our executives also started to listen. We got to go to BitCon 2014, 15, um, just to kind of build, start building relationship with the U.S. MCNs. And that's when I met you as well. Essentially, uh, down the road, I got to know that there are some discrepancies between U.S. MCNs and APEC MCNs. Yeah. Tell us yeah. more about that. What right. Are, what are your uh, <laughs> thoughts on the differences? Right. Basically, you know about this. MCN's business model is only a handful, right? Mostly from advertisement, whether it be, you know, AdSense from pre-rolls or the branded contents. Branded contents start to take up a big portion of our revenue um, breakdown. And what's hard about that is not only that it's very labor intensive, but also that there is such a limited cap. Limited a limitation when it comes to like the expansion of the uh, the dollars in the industry. So in Korea, we found it very difficult because brands uh, advertisers were much more demanding, and they were so used to having such a close relationship with the production side of branded content that it would never get the okay sign. Like if if the launch date was you know like beginning of April, it would always end up being like you know uh, launched in at the end of April. Because advertisers are so picky and demanding about what can be done and what should be, you know, portrayed, and I think ultimately came from the lack of a better word, it's a kind of looking down upon the creators. They were still not at the mainstream level where brands took them seriously. You know, PNG, for example, we didn't really do anything with PNG, but PNG. Uh, say, work with like, a, you know, YouTube creator with 100,000 subscribers, you know, PNG is such a big brand that they would want this and this and this. They want you creative know. control. They want exactly. to voice the process. Exactly. Uh-huh. They want to voice the process a lot. And so I think that was a very difficult part in working with Asian uh, advertisers. I think it's also interesting that CJ decided to build an MCN internally rather than to invest or acquire an MCN as many other traditional media companies did, both in the U.S. and in parts of Western Europe. Why do you think that strategic decision was made to develop the capability themselves? Like I said, it wasn't an easy process. It took us a long time to even internally sell uh, sell our product. Eventually, traditional media guys start to take it seriously and uh, look into it. And then like we figured out a way to make a synergy out of uh, this digital division and the traditional division. I think ultimately, uh, the numbers proved themselves and basically the eyeballs were moving to digital and they saw that with you know their 17 cable TV channels not doing well. Yes, of course, they had one or two IP that kind of stuck out and uh, made a huge hit like for that year, but it's only one or two soap operas. Usually their the rating was going down and when they saw the TV channel kind of shrink its own size and even in terms of advert advertisement dollars they couldn't help but to like include us in the regular package where they pitched to the, uh, the advertisers because if you think about it cj had decades of relationships uh, with these big titles big uh, advertisers brands and so for them to kind of you know tuck in our product as like a digital side of it oh you can do you know primetime uh, tv advertisement 15 second you can do this but also you could run this youtube program with this and this influencers i think that made sense to the brands mm-hmm. 
that's when Daya TV started to have the second sort of renaissance of its own. We talked a little bit about the differences of some of the new media companies mm-hmm. or MCNs in APAC that might be different and how advertisers are different than the U.S. Um, what would you say is unique about the South Korean market? What about working and building a business in Seoul is different than other parts of APAC? I think that South Korea is one of the most trendy and I want to put it in parenthesis, quote mark, uh, trendy places around the world where people genuinely hate to be uh, behind what, whatever it's right now, uh, hot or what's in, you know? And that, well, that kind of leads a greater influence on sort of building the brand. And for example, when we're talking to influencers, uh, it's really important that we stay on top of our games and we let them know for sure that this is a hot stuff. You don't go anywhere else. And, you know, MCNs probably two or three years into the business, we got to the maturing stage. And now what do we differentiate, you know, our network from others? Um, I think that was when DITV started to kind of have like very many, like very fierce internal discussions about how can we differentiate. Um, and, influencers wanted to go after whatever is hot. And so um, that's when we started to actively integrate TV and um, other other things that other networks cannot do. Because, I mean, there are a lot of third-party MCNs who would just you know, give cash or give cars or, you know, it's, it's still extreme in Asia. I mean, you sign with us, you get a car. That's pretty attractive option, right? <laughs> yeah, where do I sign um, up? Right. Because... Because MCN at that time was, you know, going through like this overinvestment like bubble stage. So all the VCs wanted to go after them. And if you just have the word MCN, like you could, you know, unless you have like a very big problem, you would have like some kind of investment that you could live off of for maybe next two or three years. So, so the market got really crowded and more competitive. And so with that, you were looking for, I guess, sounds like additional ways to drive strategic value between CJ's traditional business and the Diet TV MCN's understanding of digital. Right. And that, that came through television placements, getting influencers, leveling them up to cross over and be on TV. Right. This happened after I left Diet TV, but Diet TV even made a separate channel, like a linear channel on cable TV that only has like influencers in it. Wow. And so. is that successful? Depends on how you say it. <laughs> I think that, well, I, I it's not fair for me to kind of make a comment, but sure. maybe it's more fair because I'm an outsider now. In terms of, you know, is it going to be the next, you know, main TV channel that everybody watches? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of bringing the awareness to the creator community and, you know, creators having like their next level of um, success uh, in their career, I think, yes. I think a lot of them, have found like these new sides of them while working with TV producers rather than just you know sitting in their room and doing their own stuff. So you mentioned you also spent some time in Shanghai. I'm curious to get your take on the Chinese video market, given there is no YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. There's about 14 major player platforms all competing for dominance. So what is your take on the future of online video in China? There are actually a couple. I used to work with, from Korean MCN standpoint, I did global business with Chinese counterparts. And there were about two takeaways. Um, first, it's not democratic. I think the whole point of YouTube communities growing so fast and to the level where they are right now is because we all have, as human, we all have the hopes of 
you know, looking at like the top creators like PewDiePie or maybe, you know, like he started at some point too. And then maybe I could be the next, you know, so and so. So I think we all have that mindset and that eventually creates, um, well, that eventually leads more creators to come into the market. Now in China, for example, the Yoku Tudo, which does have the largest market share in the video industry, it's not by algorithm that they curate their contents. It's curated by humans, uh, which means that no matter how hard you work, no matter how many viewerships you get, you will never be on front. Whereas in YouTube, if you work hard enough, know, figure out the algorithm and you know, deliver the right contents and deliver the right audience or uh, develop the right audience, then you will be up there somehow, right? So you have that hope, although the algorithm itself is a little black box. But in China, you don't really have that hope from the get-go because it's curated. And unless you're, you know, unless you're selected by the personal, the curator of the platform, you're not guaranteed to be on the top. So I think that's one finding. Well, does that mean the Chinese video industry doesn't have a bright future? I don't think so because of my take two was that it still has a lot of people. <laughs> and as you know, mobile penetration and 4D penetration is just going to continue to go up and surrounding by like the, the second tier cities now coming up um, next to the first tier city, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Um, they're going to have the next of those, those cities and eventually lead to more mobile penetration and higher data spend. And I think that what's really booming now is live streaming. As we know, we have like tons and tons of uh, live streaming platforms in China. And that kind of, that's rooted to the individuals who are talented. Why do you think that live streaming is so much more prevalent in China and other parts of APAC than it is, say, in the Western world? I mean, we're starting to see that Twitch obviously led the way. And then you have YouTube and Facebook Live. But live streaming is like a completely different phenomenon in China. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's also linked to the number one, like the fact that that in traditional video, you know, subscription or video platform, it's really hard to bring up your own visibility or it's not guaranteed. Whereas in live streaming, as long as you keep the right contact with your audience, you're always going to have them. And um, secondly, I would say, you know, China is a large country. Uh, what I have found is that, the talented people per capita is important. And I think China obviously has good potential in, in that because it's a large country. So um, they will bring out all these talents. And I think that people like to follow. And thirdly, probably this is a cultural aspect. So I'm not sure if it's um, right. But just my personal take is that compared to Western world, Asian, Asian um, societies... Uh, basically care a lot about other people. So like, but flip that around and say they get nosy about other people's business, right? And as a society developed, we kind of figured out a way to how to put our lives in a very private, you know, like for example, like we don't, we don't say hi to our neighbors, like in big cities, like in Seoul or Shanghai, you know, cause it's scary. So we don't, we don't do that anymore, but that kind of leads to, you know, like that kind of goes against the human nature where we like naturally want to connect with people. And I think one of the reasons why mukbang, you know, the food eating uh, live streaming got so popular is because of the growth of single household in, in Korea, um, because they still want to get connected, but they don't want to be necessarily shown to another person. 
but it's like a way of releasing your long- loneliness. It sounds weird, but yeah. it, it, so there's been it kind is of to a certain degree. Cultural trends that create isolation or, or this physical separation, you know, especially in big cities, we don't necessarily know our neighbors, but through mm-hmm. live streaming, it allows you to connect with another human in human a way being, right. yeah, with, where there's kind of that direct interaction. And it seems like also in APAC that live streaming offers creators in some sense a better path to monetization, right? Mm-hmm. That the Avon models aren't as robust as they are in, say, US or Western Europe. And so with that, if you can build a direct following through a live streaming platform and they can tip or find other ways to contribute, then that leads to a better path to monetization. Right. And interestingly enough, you know, now YouTube has Super Chat, uh, the rolled out Super Yeah. Chat. What do you think of that? I think there's a great future uh, in that. I think finally, we had wanted for the longest time for YouTube to come up with some uh, some direct monetization uh, model such as Super Chat. Because even in 2013, 14, Korea had a platform called uh, Africa TV where you give um, like stars to the creators. And that was basically the Super Chat model. But, you know, so compared to that, YouTube live... At that time, we didn't have life, but still, uh, creators found a no-brainer to go with a local partner, local uh, platform. But I, I think we are definitely at a consolidating stage. You know, there are so many live streaming platforms that you can choose. You can't be live streaming five devices all at the same time, although some creators manage to do it. Um, I I do believe that whoever uh, gets like a right uh, user experience and also like the operation side of like the the media operation side of the business um, put together, I think whoever does that first will grab the most eyeballs, um, even in the Western space or in in APAC. What about subscription video on demand? Is that a prevalent trend in Korea? Are you seeing adoption of a lot of OTT or SVOD services? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you more, a little bit about what I do currently. Um, so Please. Yeah. 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 After, so we should get there. After three years at uh, CGENM and launching the Diet TV MCN, you moved over to Google. So tell right, us about that. Right. Actually, to answer your question, as sure. wide, I think it's just better. So MCN was great. I loved it. Um, I still am grateful for what I was given because of that industry. There are a couple of reasons why I had to leave. First, Google offer was good. <laughs> Second, um, MCN uh, started to see the lack, like the limitation in the revenue uh, generation model. As much as I fiercely uh, thought about it, it was sort of an industry issue. And then that eventually led to the, you know, like with the maturing in industry maturing as well. But I think in a sense, I kind of had felt that there's got to be more to this than a video platform or, you know, uh, I wanted to figure out a broader monetization models, um, even, you know, covering like apps or maybe web pages or, you know, not just necessarily video platforms. So those are a couple of reasons. And so I moved to, currently I do, I lead Google Play business development in entertainment apps. So apps like Netflix or Hulu or equivalent of those in Korea. Yeah, it's very rewarding. Basically, I'm helping and advising app developers to create better success through our platform and mostly consulting them on monetization. So it has been very rewarding. And Android, you know, it's available in nine, well, 190 countries. We just announced 2 billion active uh, Android devices around the world. Phenomenal. So that is huge, right? And so it's another challenge to advocate and be an evangelist for this huge platform and helping local content creators 
including broadcasters and the independent creators uh, to make money on our platform. So, so back to your question about SVOD, it is growing in Korea. It is growing globally. Um, Netflix was our, is, is still our uh, closest partner. Um, we helped Netflix to, when they started to go global more aggressively. So uh, there came to a point where Netflix needed to grow out of US and they faced some issues. You know, A, you could simply turn on the, like all the geo blocks on the, your app store platform and uh, you would get like other people from, uh, for people from other countries are able to download your app. However, uh, A, is the content uh, locally suitable? Probably not. And maybe House of Cards, but they need some local contents. And two, they had billing problems. So each and every country has different billing platform that are mostly handled by either carrier company, the telecom companies, or third party, um, the payment system companies. And all local uh, users prefer different ways. So that was a challenge. And third, you know, how do they more systematically roll out in different countries? Do they just roll out in 100 countries all at once or selectively uh, do they do A-B testing in this country and how do they do that? Uh, so Google Play actually came in and provided them with solution in many different places, especially uh, surrounding the billing. Uh, Google Play already is available in um, the most of all, pretty much all of the countries that Netflix was going after. So that's why uh, we built this partnership and, and they actually adopted Google Play billing. So basically when you go when you use Android phone, if you try to sign up on Netflix and then, you know, try to subscribe, that's the billing method you're going to go through. Um, so even in Korea, they did a lot of testings, but they found that retention funnel was so much better in Google Play billing as opposed to other billing methods. Wow, that's great. So, so because Google had already navigated many of these complexities, mm-hmm. you were able to help them understand the challenges and work strategically with these partners to identify solutions. Right. I think in digital media, it's different from traditional media in a sense that before you only had to worry about the device level. So we talk about CPND, you know, like um, basically the contents, you know, through network, and then it goes through the platform and then goes to your device, which is TV. So like people just, you know, sit in front of the TV and they watch it. But I think in digital, you have to think about what happens after the device. So you have the mobile phone, that's your device, but what interactions happen from the device to the users? And that can be a very significant loss of like a loophole if you don't take a good care of it. And I think a lot of media companies miss out on that, especially in digital media. Say you want to subscribe to Netflix. But they ask you your, you know, like social security number, the car license number and all this information before you sign up. That's going to lead you to like losing 70% of users, right? That's what's exactly happening in some of the apps. They claim to be subscription-based OTT service, but they uh, make like seven different steps in order to subscribe the app. So the user experience, it really does matter. And that's one of the things that I'm really pitching from the app store standpoint of view. And in addition to working on the Google Play Entertainment apps, you're also leading Google's Daydream VR initiative. Right. So tell us a little bit more about the Daydream rollout. Um, so Daydream is Google's VR platform. It made the visual launch last year uh, in around November. It has been very successful because 
it is a first one of the first mobile based VR platform that is affordable and available to so many um, like the, the, the broader scope of audience. So prior to this, uh, it, the VR industry was more about high end devices such as HTC Vive and Oculus, and now they think mm, it's great. But how many people can actually use more than you know, uh, like a thousand dollars on you know VR devices? So we came up with Daydream, which is Google's VR platform. So if you have Daydream headset, which is around seventy-five dollars consumer price, and a Day Daydream Ready mobile phone, you get to uh, insert the mobile phone in the headset, and you get to experience VR content. And while doing so. What I needed to do is to talk to content developers about uh, adopting Daydream to their platform or to their content, and we're going to do country launch. I'm currently working on the country launch of Daydream uh, in Korea, and it's going to be probably towards the end of year. A few new things were announced at I/O uh, just last week when I was in um, Mountain View, California, because if you hear about this model, unless the Daydream phones. You know how many daydream ready phones are available in the market? Like that's that's mainly what's important. That's basically the game changer if we're talking about mobile um, VR platform. Uh, so before we had our own phone, which is Pixel, and um, that was great. However, if you're not having OEM partnership, that's difficult. Now, but this year we announced uh, like our official partnership launch with Samsung and LG. Wow! So That's yeah, massive. whatever their next model is, um, actually we're gonna make it all daydream ready, and then as long as you purchase or get this headset, you'll be able to enjoy the full VR experience. So, is that competitive at all with Samsung's individual VR plays, or how did Google and Samsung decide to work together on a partnership like that? Yes, it's. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, it did take a lot, a long time, and at least from the partnership perspective. But Samsung does have its own, you know, VR platform. It's called Gear VR, and it operates with Galaxy. But I think Daydream was able to deliver uh, the values that only Google can offer. That uh, Samsung thought that at the end of the day, you know, this. Is only going to uh, grow the pie, not you know in- encroaching upon their own business. I think ultimately that would have been the reason why the you know the announcement was able to be made. What do you think the primary applications of VR are going to be? I mean, to start, it sounds like you're focused on a media and entertainment use case, but in the future, do you anticipate that through the Daydream platform there will be additional applications? Of course. So it's just like the beginning of mobile mobile days. In back in 2010, we thought, you know, okay, smartphone, I get it. Like it can do more than like just, you know, just your folder phone. But then what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do with your phone? But then look, look how mobile our lives are. You know, like pretty much everybody works in tech technically, right? Because, you know, like if you're working finance, you do have finance app and shopping, shopping apps, et cetera. I think if eventually VR will replicate the same process. Not just the media entertainment, but you'll be able to, you know, for example, real estate apps. You get to see the property without going there, or a shopping app. Uh, like you buy furnitures and you get to place it like on on your. I mean, that's like kind of mixed with AR too, but you get to visualize place it. it in your yeah, home. visualize uh-huh. it in your home. I think there are many user cases, and we're very excited to see what could be done. Very cool. So it sounds like to you, VR and augmented reality 
are the next platform shift, right? The same thing that happened in social and happened in mobile. Um, we have that opportunity now with VR to experience the world in a completely different way. We're going to make it happen. I love it. That's <laughs> awesome. So now that you've had this opportunity to work in some of the largest and most prominent companies in the world, from Morgan Stanley to Google to CJNM, what's next for Jenna? Have you ever thought about doing something entrepreneurial? Yes, it would be a lie if I say no. <laughs> I am so lucky that um, I'm privileged to interact with so many like startup leaders, uh, in, especially in tech world. Because I represent uh, Google Play, I get to meet all these like app developers who have built their business out of nothing and eventually change how the users behave. So yes, I think down the road, that's obviously it's one of my options. Um, as of now, I think... I would like to kind of work on this, you know, how much can I actually learn from the developers and partners? And, you know, who knows, you know, maybe it's not going to be too later, but then like, I do think about those options. Yes. What are some of the great books or resources that have informed your career, shaped you as a, as a person? I think I do have a lot of books, but I kind of want to share what I'm reading right now. Please. I am reading uh, Option B by Sheryl Sandberg. Mm. And yes, it's very cliche, like working working in tech, reading of, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's work. Uh, but then also, I I think that well, my career is going to remark like 10-year-ish remark, like uh, in coming months. And now that, now that I think about it, what really matters is resilience and resilience and sort of the belief that you have to yourself. And this book talks about how Cheryl, you know, she lost her husband, but she still made it through um, while working as a COO of Facebook. And she also kind of brings in some of the psychological, theoretical basis on how to, how she overcame the grief and why it's important to, sometimes you, you don't always have option A's, but you got to know how to work with option B's. And that's what makes you uh, go through life and not just go through life, but achieve greater things in life. Yeah, that's really powerful. Right. So I'm really enjoying the read. Yes. Yeah. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the media landscape, what would they be? That's a really deep question. First of all, I think users will shape the industry. I think we've just witnessed it uh, with what happened in MCN and the creator space. Secondly, I think that institutional media companies have to be more careful and have to invest more in how the content is presented to the users. And just like I mentioned about user experiences, that's just like a little like parts of it. But even when they're shaping the next level AI-based uh, content platform and things like that, they have to think about how it's presented and how it's friendly to users. I mean, that's such sounds like a no-brainer, but it's amazing how many, many companies are still not working on it. I think creative, creative people tend to still think that content is the king and therefore everything else kind of follows. I think more and more, that's not going to be the trend. And thirdly, I did mention uh, earlier, but AI, Google just rolled out Assistant and uh, last year, and basically it's voice commanded. Um, it's going to, it's connected to Android TV and all the other IT giants, um, Amazon and other, other companies are doing that too, but it's going to be basically another, another interesting period to watch uh, where how AI is implemented in entertainment. 
That's awesome. So you've got a focus on user experience and putting the user first and encouraging traditional media companies to realize that it's not just about content anymore. It's all about the distribution reach, but also the way in which that content is delivered. Right. And then leveraging AI to perhaps change the inputs Mm -hmm. of how we navigate and access information. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? Does, can you like put in parentheses that you don't have to worry about money? Sure, of course. <laughs> there are no limitations. You have all the resources. I still do. want to do things for dancers. I still want to do things for uh, creators, uh, but artists, and kind of help them to step up to the next level. Reason why I'm not, I thought about doing a dance MCN in Korea. Uh, the reason why I stopped is because there simply isn't a even like with a basic educational guest, like there isn't a big enough market for that particular country. And so I kind of drew back from that idea. But yeah, if I don't have to worry about money, I would definitely like to kind of you know, combine my passion towards dance and all these things that I learned in digital space. And I want to build another media company that could influence and impact dancers. That's next awesome. generation. Yeah, dance is such an interesting vertical. And we've seen the success of a lot of popular dance shows and platforms. I mean, in the US, you have things like So You Think You Can Dance and Dancing with the Stars and all these you know, great kind of reality right. TV sensations. When it comes to digital, it's a difficult vertical for a few reasons. Number one, most of the content is made with popular music. And so the music rights landscape is very difficult to navigate, right? right. Everyone wants to dance to the popular song. And yet... Universal Music or Warner or Mm -hmm. Sony wants to claim that content because they own the rights to the the music. Right. So that becomes a challenge for monetization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I think the other potential issue is how do you access advertisers, right? It's It's a little bit of a more clear fit if you're playing in the gaming space or in the beauty space. I think some brands struggle to see the endemic opportunity for dance content, even though, you know, theoretically it has such broad appeal. Right. So it's one of the more challenging field to monetize and like you said, uh, you know, approach the brands with, but, you know, things are never as they are nowadays. <laughs> and That's so true. I think it, we can still, um, we can still think upon it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And dance is also something that has such universal appeal, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a universal language in a sense. And you think about some of the, the biggest viral video hits on YouTube and other platforms, many of them have been kind of music and dance related or inspired. Right, right. And who knows, you know, I, no one really wants to keep their hobby as their job. So maybe I will not go into that field and, uh, you know, somehow spot a great business idea down the road and do a completely different thing. But yes, I do admire each and every single CEO <laughs> of, of um, whatever they're doing. They're trying to change the world. Um, they're trying to make impact in, in this world. And, you know, I think that's such a meaningful thing to do. And maybe to a certain degree, I'm, I try not to, but people do get comfortable within corporate settings. But I think one of the nice things about Google is that even though you work under a huge corporate umbrella, they constantly drive their employees to find their own ways of innovation. So I think in a sense that I'm still in training mode. Where can people find out more about you and more about what Google Play is doing in Korea, especially around the Daydream launch and and working with app entertainment partners? 
How can they find out more about you? How can they get I'm, more information? I'm all over digital. I should maybe do more manage manage of uh, my digital <laughs> <laughs> breadcrumbs you here and there. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm. You can reach me by LinkedIn, and I try to keep it as LinkedIn and like other social media platforms that I do. But mostly professionally, it's LinkedIn. And also, uh, Google Play does hold a lot of events. In fact, I was just in, in one developer conference, which is our annual developer conference at IO. And throughout the world, they do have like in Europe and uh, Middle East region, like South American region, North America and Asia, we all have Google Play teams all over. And so you can definitely reach our teams out uh, to find out more about us. Terrific. Well, Jenna, this has been absolutely incredible. I'm so glad it worked out for us to spend some time together while you're here in LA and for you to Thank share you. your insights and perspectives into all of APAC, and particularly from your experience in Korea and in China. It's fascinating to hear what's happening in that part of the world. Thank you. Thank you. It was a, I really enjoyed the experience too. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Bye.